It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On Friday, April 28, 2023, Wilson Garcia was home in Cleveland, Texas, struggling to put his young baby to sleep as loud gunshots rang out from his neighbor's yard. Mr. Garcia approached his neighbor, Francisco Oropesa, asking him to please shoot further away so that his child could sleep. Oropesa refused, saying he could do whatever he wanted on his own property. Mr. Garcia returned home to his family, where he and his wife, Sonia Argentina Guzman, went on to call the police. And while the dispatcher assured help was on the way, Oropesa appeared at the Garcia residence and shot and killed Sonia. The horror continued as Oropesa moved through the house. He shot and killed Wilson's nine-year-old son, Daniel Enrique Lasso, and then shot and killed 18-year-old Jose Jonathan Cesares. He killed 21-year-old Diana Velazquez Alvarado and 31-year-old Julissa Molina Rivera. Diana and Julissa lost their lives shielding young children who survived the attack. Francisco Oropesa then fled the scene following that vicious attack on his neighbors, leading law enforcement on a four-day manhunt. The following Tuesday night, Oropesa was apprehended by authorities, found hidden among laundry in a closet in a home just miles away from the crime scene. Oropesa, a Mexican illegal immigrant, had a criminal history and had been deported four times, leaving many to question how he had remained in the United States and what took so long to track him down. Joining me is Lenny DePaul, a former chief inspector and commander of the U.S. Marshals New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force. Lenny was one of the Regional Fugitive Task Force's original members, During his time with the Marshal Service, Commander DePaul was given numerous awards, including the Investigator of the Year Award by the Federal Law Enforcement Foundation, as well as the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement. Today, he gives us an inside look into the manhunt for Francisco Oropesa and explains what goes into law enforcement's intensive search for a fugitive. It was certainly an active and intense manhunt from Jump Street. I mean, he was in the wind. They were chasing a ghost. Um, It didn't appear to be a premeditated thing. Uh, However, you know, you've got that intense manhunt going on. There were over 200 and some odd law enforcement uh, officers there on the scene. Uh, But you also had that fugitive investigation going on behind the scenes. And, you know, the U.S. Marshal Service, uh, the storied agency that it is, they're also the premier agency in this country uh, in, in hunting down violent felony fugitives. So, they were called in, uh, they worked well with the sheriff's department, the FBI. I know Bortech, Border Patrol was, was there and several others. But, uh, you know, they hit the ground running. Uh, they do what they do best. They, um, you know, I believe it was the Gulf Coast Violent Offenders Fugitive Task Force of the U.S. Marshals, the Southern District of Texas. And, you know, they were putting that puzzle together and connecting the dots. I mean, it's all about, you know, when somebody like him uh, goes in the wind, you got to flip his world upside down. I mean, the digital footprint is very important. Um, they're, you know, they're looking at, we call who's who in the zoo, Emily. I mean, they're looking at everybody, um, not just the fugitive himself. So, 
uh, you know, they were they were trying to put the puzzle together. Uh, they, I know they had a cell phone they recovered in the woods, some clothing and whatnot, uh, several weapons, I believe, at his residence. Uh, the wife uh, apparently started to cooperate, from what I understand. Uh, that didn't play out too well for her at the end of this thing. But, uh, you know, they, they were they were looking at everything. Uh, that phone was important. I mean, if, in fact, he was or did slip through the cracks or through that perimeter, uh, did he make a phone call? Uh, so again, that digital footprint was important. Historically, uh, what was he all about? I mean, this guy, what was he, an illegal reentry? I think he was deported four or five times, uh, convicted felon. He's got a firearm. I know law enforcement showed up at his house. Uh, I don't know if it was recently, but you know, you kind of scratch your head. Uh, you got a, you got an illegal reentry, a convicted felon with firearms, and law enforcement shows up and tells him to stop shooting his gun in the backyard. You know, we could have avoided this this uh, horrific, uh, uh, you know, homicides that were occurring. So anyways, uh, w- what they ended up doing, um, you know, it was old fashioned police work, hitting the bricks, knocking on doors, Q&A and people. There was an eighty thousand dollar reward. The U.S. Marshals, I think, just threw twenty thousand in probably two hours before the capture. So this thing was up to one hundred thousand and. And as I said on, on Fox yesterday with Bill and, and Dana Perino, I said, the streets talk. I mean, that's a lot of money. You know, I don't think he made his way into Mexico. Um, he, he may be local. Uh, but again, you could what if this thing to death at that point. Um, so the tipster that called in, I mean, like I said, the streets talk and they talk pretty loud. The call came in and I don't know exactly how the call went down uh, with law enforcement, but and whether or not the wife was... Uh, I'm not sure if she was mentioned on the call. I think she was, but it was something like, you know, follow mom, <laughs> follow the wife. Um, I know he, he uh, they had a location. I think it was the aunt's house where where he ended up, but they made entry. Um, they had canine with them, and uh, I believe the dog found him under uh, some clothes, I think hiding in a closet and threw his hands up and, and the coward that he was, uh, you know, went down without incident. So, you know, these things I've seen, I've seen them go down, a million different ways, Emily. You, you have no idea what happens once that news starts tightening and and that perimeter, you know, tightens up a little bit. Is it suicide by cop? Is it? Uh, uh, do they have a barricaded suspect with a, with a hostage? I mean, I, I I hunted down violent felony fugitives for three decades: terrorists, murderers, you know, rapists, arsonists, gun runners, drug runners, and sadly, I've seen it go down, you know, a lot worse than this. So thankfully, it did go down, uh, you know, uh, without incident. And this guy. Uh, He's in custody and no one else got hurt. I was reminded as well when he, while being arrested by authorities, you know, he was found, as you said, hidden among the laundry in a closet. Um, And just how at the end of the day, these horrific monsters, these violent criminals are just hiding like dogs. You know, they're just they're just hiding like animals. And it reflects their behavior, especially this one um, who gunned down an entire family, um, including children, and the adults of whom died shielding other children. It's just horrific. You say we have no idea. Why don't you share a little bit of details, help enlighten listeners as to what manhunts and those eventual apprehensions, what they look like? Well, I'll, I'll put it into perspective. I mean, the agency that I had worked for for three decades uh, doing this type of work, the men and women that are downrange uh, doing God's work, I call it, um, you know, they face these things every day. You know, we knock doors down for a living. Unfortunately, at Dark 30 and 
and going after people that just don't want to go back to jail. And post 9-11, uh, Congress felt it necessary that that we look in our own backyards. The FBI was focusing on domestic terrorism, and, and rightfully so. Um, you know, they mandated us to, to uh, stand up permanent fugitive task forces throughout the country. So the New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force uh, is the flagship and, and the model, if you will. Uh, that's where I was the commander there. I had 350 uh, full-time investigators from over 90 different federal, state, and local agencies. Um, we were averaging, Emily, anywhere, and still are, anywhere from 100 to 110 arrests a week, just in my region alone, of violent criminals. Uh, the specific language by Congress was to target, you know, dangerous felonies, uh, uh, fugitives, and and they were... They actually had language, you know, and, and kind of laid it out what, what they wanted us to look at throughout the, you know, across the globe. And, you know, every one of these arrests we were making, these guys and girls averaging anywhere from four to six prior arrests. Uh, when when one of these cases cross your desk, I mean, we, we were looking at all highlighted cases. When these departments came to the table, you know, they brought their, their top 10, 15, 20 fugitives to us. We had manpower, state-of-the-art equipment, money, um, resources, and you know, as I said earlier, not to beat our own chest, but we're pretty good at what we do when it comes to the world of manhunting. So, um, you know, they would come in with these cases and, and we'd hit the ground running. And, and, you know, you're every morning, these men and women that are doing this type of work. I mean, you, you're knocking on a door at Dark 30 in, in some unknown territory you've never seen before. And you got a pretty good idea that the person on the other side of that door uh, doesn't want to go to jail and they'd rather kill you uh, than do that. And and if you don't realize that, you better get another job. Uh, and, and it's just, it, it's endless and, and they're doing it as we speak. So, you know, I salute the men and women that do this every day. Uh, it, it's tough work. We're out there making our communities a safer place. Nobody wants criminals like this on the streets. Uh, I, I, when I heard this defund the police stuff and all this nonsense. I'm like, what? I, I was just, I was scratching my head and it, it's crazy. Uh, I can give you a perfect example. We were in Camden, New Jersey. Uh, the attorney general said, hey, there's a lot of top five in the country now, years back. And, and uh, so we did a sweep down there. We targeted 50 uh, felony fugitives in the area. On the last day of our operation, we had arrested 49 out of 50. I was actually down there at five o'clock in the morning. We pulled this this drug, uh, this drug dealer, weapons offense, whatever. It was a variety of different crimes. But uh, so we got them in handcuffs. We're walking down the street and, and people were on their porches and they were clapping. And, and I'm looking around and I was like, well, they, and they were happy. They were clapping for us. They we were cleaning up the neighborhood and it kind of hit home. And I, and I'm to myself, I'm like, okay, all right, now it makes sense why, uh, you know, why I do this for a living. So it is, it's a tough job. I mean, it, it's, it's a, um, a dangerous job. Uh, I was a huge proponent of training. We trained all the time. You have to be, you know, tactically sound um, to do this type of work and, you know, take a guy like this or Peza. He was, you know, he, whether he was intoxicated or not with an AR-15 and, and allegedly killing five people, uh, you can't take that lightly. You don't know how this thing's going to gonna go down. And when they made that entry, uh, you know, last night, I think it was 530 or whatever their time, um, you know, you got to treat every fugitive the same uh, until the dust settles and the smoke clears and you know, a guy like him, I mean, he was he was beat up pretty good. He was in the woods for a while, they told me. And, and uh, you know, he looked like, uh, uh, you know, I always say you can run, but you can't hide, Emily. And when you hide, you only go to jail tired. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. What always right. strikes me about the U.S. Marshal Service is um, the how tiny but mighty you are. You know, it's the smallest federal law enforcement agency, but to your point, you have such a high success rate in such a crucial component of our criminal justice system, you know, apprehending these fugitives, non-compliant sex offenders and the like. And so going back to Oropesa, to your point, so he had an extensive violent criminal history. We knew he had been deported four times. We knew the last time that he had had a formal engagement of record was in 2016. So that's why so many people sort of question what took so long to track him down. This this violent act, but for this horrific tragedy, he would have continued to exist under the radar. And that's part of, to me, what makes this such a tragedy. It was preventable if the laws had been enforced, if he had been successfully deported permanently or successfully incarcerated permanently for his horrific prior actions. A hundred percent. I mean, 2016, but as an illegal reentry, I mean, we work these cases all the time. We have ICE and and uh, Customs, Border Patrol, CBP and whatnot, HIS. They're, they're on board our task forces nationwide. Um, I can't, when I was working, I can't tell you how many illegal reentries we arrested uh, daily. Um, and to put it into perspective, again, you mentioned the agency in itself. We're arresting anywhere from 70 to 90,000 fugitives a year in this country. I mean, think about those numbers. It's staggering what uh, what what we're we're doing in these communities and how we're making you know our country trying to make our country a safer place. Guys like this, they slip through the cracks. I mean, it's sad in this climate out you know right now. I mean, these guys and, and law enforcement had visited this this location, his residence, and had uh, had words with this guy. You know, I think I want to say recently. Um, but hey, you run his name, you see. You know, you get his background, you see he's wanted, uh, you arrest the guy and what they let him back out in a half an hour. And it's just like, you know, it's sad what law enforcement is is uh, confronted with nowadays. Um, and they're not able to do their job. They got they got one arm tied behind their backs, unfortunately. But, yeah, this certainly could have been prevented. And and uh, it's sick. And I mean, I'm, I'm hoping these families have some closure uh, with this guy, you know, now hopefully sitting on death row if they uh, incorporate the, uh, you know, the death penalty here. But uh, we'll see. And I wanted to clarify that with you because you'd mentioned earlier about um, law enforcement's interaction with him. And from what I understand, it was the next door neighbor, the Garcia family, um, the, the father, Mr. Garcia, who had approached Oropesa and told him, you know, to stop shooting right there because his baby was asleep in the home and even said, could you shoot further away? He ended up surviving the horrible ensuing massacre, which is how we know that this exchange happened because that's what prompted Oropesa to then enter Garcia's home and systematically execute people inside. So had there been an additional distinct visit then by law enforcement, you're saying that had to do with Oropesa's use of his, his weapons on his property, his proclivity to be shooting when he got drunk? I had heard that they had visited that house in the past, not just uh, what happened a few days ago. Uh, I mean, here you got a convicted felon. He's been deported. He's got weapons. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's against the law. Um, you know, now they're showing up in, in uh, because of, uh, you know, firing his guns and whatnot. And I, I just, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of scratching my head on, on how that all went down in the past as well. I mean, again, this could have been prevented, but they're up against it. It's not, I'm not blaming law enforcement. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're certainly uh, living in a tough climate right now, but uh, 
Yeah, I know the neighbor, and and I and I've heard what had happened on how he asked him to you know go shoot your guns on the other side of your property. The kids are trying to sleep. Uh, what what provoked him to to lock and load that AR fifteen and show up at the front door of this house? It just uh, I have no idea what it, you know. Again, human instincts turn into animal instincts, and this is what you got. You know, he's in the wind. He ends up in the woods. He's at his aunt's house, and you know, crying like a baby underneath the a bunch of clothes when he gets arrested. So I, I don't, I don't get it. And, uh, but again, I've seen it, unfortunately, uh, my whole career. And to underscore what you said earlier about, you know, frankly, the desperation, um, that many fugitives have or parole violators, people who have been incarcerated to your point, they will do anything not to go back. And what makes the situation so incendiary is, again, their desperation at preventing that, which ups the percentage, the increase of statistics for, as you said, you know, suicide by a cop. Or, and, and the problem is that this desperation that they oftentimes fugitives will take it into their own hands. So if they feel they've been wrongfully incarcerated or that they will wrongfully go back to prison, they're, they're trying all they can to stay away without using the legal methods of doing so, without using the court system, um, it, it just really becomes a like I said, incendiary, potentially explosive situation, risking everyone's lives because of that measure of desperation. So it's so sad, especially when you have families involved, terrified neighbors, have you, as you have discussed, where for them, they don't really have an, an option either way, right? They're, they're terrified to help. They're terrified not to help. Harboring a fugitive is a felon, is a felony. Um, aiding and abetting in any way is a felony. And, and a lot of these family members and loved ones are put into impossible situations by these guys through no fault of their own. Um, and plenty who, who know exactly what they're doing as well. But it's just it's such a, a risky, risky area that, again, you and your fellow marshals um, just have incredible bravery and a plum throughout. Well, it, absolutely. And, I, you know, in these these people with these uh, rap sheets a mile long, they they know the failed system that, you know, especially that we're living in now. This, and this Orpeza, he he's been deported for, he knows the system. He knows how he can, he can come get in out of this country and in the poorest borders. And, you know, it, 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 and it, look what he was doing. I mean, he was living a life of Riley uh, back in Texas. So uh, yeah, I mean, where you, when you get a case that crosses your desk, regardless, whether it's a parole violator or a triple homicide suspect, like I said earlier, you got to treat them all the same uh, until, you know, the dust settles and the smoke clears. And then you treat them just like, uh, you know, I've had fugitives that that ran on me, that shot at me, you know, hiding, they're hiding in, in, in their underwear under a bed. And, you know, they ride like they hide. I mean, once they're in handcuffs, you know, sorry about your luck. But it's, it's really, it, it's, you know, it's tough what we're faced. And yeah, 4,000 deputy U.S. marshals across this country. Thank God these task forces that joint uh, concept, the, uh, you know, force multiplier, if you will, everybody working together at the speed of the internet. I mean, I wish I had this, you know, 20 years ago or so, but it, it, it makes life, like I said, on the run impossible. We're global. We're on the ground in several vulnerable countries, if you will, uh, Mexico city being one of them, but, uh, in Mexico. So, you know, it, it really helps Interpol, uh, the director there, Mike Hughes, good friend of mine, um, former U S marshal, uh, he's got a hundred and what, 86 countries under him. So good luck. I mean, yeah, go on the run, um, you know, become a ghost, go off the grid, uh, you know, go dark, do what you got to do, but you got some pretty, uh, pretty good investigators that are going to, uh, going to hunt you down and, you know, was it was it Ernest Hemingway that said there is no hunting like the hunting of man and those who have hunted armed men long enough and liked it, 
never cared to do anything else thereafter. Well, <laughs> these are the men and women that do this for a living. So, More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. So you're talking about the, the force multiplier. You know, when you when you flip the switch for the U.S. Marshals enlistment, prior to that, there's a whole spectrum. And you talk about whether it's a fugitive, a parole violator, whatever. You know, that also includes nonviolent. I had a, a nonviolent um, client in her, gosh, 70s, um, nonviolent offender um, through, frankly, a bookings, like total erroneous. She never should have been prosecuted in the first place. While she was on parole after an abomination of an incarceration, um, she was watering her plants outside her large property and strayed too far from the deck. So she was watering, she was essentially watering her property and it was uh, post 7 p.m. at night or 8 p.m., whatever it was. So her parole, her PO showed up because her ankle monitor went off. And, right. you know, so, so to your point, every violation is taken seriously as it should be, of course. Um, and then that also underscores yet again how tragic it is when you have someone like that watering her roses, the P.O. shows up, and yet, again, Oropesa, multiple violent criminal history, multiple deportations, and somehow that slips under the radar. So it just goes to show our, our tax dollars are not always utilized, frankly, in the best way. On that note, on your Hemingway quote, uh, Lenny, I want to I get your thoughts finally Today, as we record this, um, there was an active shooter in Atlanta, Georgia, horrifically this afternoon, where from what we know thus far, it's breaking news. It's a rolling thunder situation. From what we know thus far, um, a suspect, Dion Pedersen, opened fire in a medical waiting room, injuring at least five people. He's on the loose right now. He's on the lamb. Active manhunt underway. What can you tell us about what law enforcement is doing right now, what all the agencies are doing right now as they hunt for an accused murderer with a, a confirmed at least one dead from this really horrible active shooter situation earlier this afternoon in Atlanta, Georgia? Well, the most important thing, you already mentioned it, he's identified. I mean, that's a home run in itself. They're not chasing a ghost. They've got somebody identified. And as I said earlier, they're flipping his world upside down. Um, they need to know everything about this guy. That trusted circle of friends is going to be important. Uh, cellular intercepts, digital footprints. Um, you know, the motive is one thing. Uh, you know, what made him react or what had happened. That's, you know, but this intense manhunt that's going on right now, coupled with the fugitive investigation, uh, hopefully, you know, they can get this guy into custody you know, sooner than later because who knows what he's about to do. I don't know if a weapon was recovered, but again, I'm, I'm hoping, crossing my fingers, that the U.S. Marshals, uh, uh, the task force in Atlanta is is doing this and on board with these folks because uh, they're the best in the business. You know, our technical operations groups, our electronic surveillance units, our financial surveillance units, that that that's very important, the money trail. This guy's going to need provisions. He's going to need, uh, you know, shelter and whatnot. So the public needs to remain vigilant. I mean, thankfully, the media and, and this guy's identified his photo, I'm sure, is being plastered all over social media uh, and the media itself and with news outlets. So, you know, that in itself really helps, um, I think, immensely. But, uh, you know, it's a full court press right now, all hands on deck, and and they're uh, hopefully hitting on all cylinders. And, and again, they take this guy, I hope they get him into custody sooner than later and put this thing to bed. And to your point, how crucial I would I would think that the tips are at this point is the public the public's vigilance. So that includes communication with law enforcement. If they see something, you're right that his 
A photo of him is absolutely being plastered across all cable and non-cable networks right now with his name. So this is when it's incumbent upon the public, if they see anyone um, resembling this man, to let law enforcement know and not approach him themselves. He's considered absolutely, yeah, no, absolutely. And again, to your point earlier, that puts you know law enforcement in a trick bag. I mean, here's a guy that did what he did. I mean, everybody in God knows what just happened, um, and. You know, once this guy's cornered, uh, once the news tightens up a little bit and they got a beat on this guy, how's he going to react? Um, it, it really is. It's, it's a difficult situation to put any anybody in uniform or, or any investigator that's, you know, downrange doing this type of work. Um, you know, you have to really know what's going on, know how to react. And if you can defuse the situation, OK, but, you know, you, you let him make that decision. Right. Uh, well, developing news story, of course, and hopefully by the time this airs, he will be apprehended. Lenny DePaul, thank you so much for joining us today for your really unparalleled insight into the U.S. Marshals and these fugitive apprehensions and, and manhunts, and most importantly, for your service, sir. Thank you. Oh, I appreciate it, Emily. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.